hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Well, thank you and welcome to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman, partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me today. Did you know that last Friday was the ninth anniversary of the current bull market? It's logged more than 108 months, 108 months without posting a decline of 20% or more. And since the bottom nine years ago, the market is up just about 300%. That's right, 300%. Now, to put it in perspective, the great bull market of the 90s, well, it holds the record as the longest running bull market in the post-World War II era. It ran for 113 months. So we're about five months short. The great bull market of the 90s, it appreciated 368%. Now, on Friday, we did get a little anniversary present, an anniversary present in the form of a pretty strong jobs number. Non-farm payrolls increased 313,000, and that was more than what was expected. And then we looked at hourly, average hourly wages. It increased two-tenths of a percent, which is what was expected, bringing the year-over-year increase in hourly wages to 2.6%. You look at this, and it suggests the economy is doing pretty darn well. And at the same time, wage growth remains pretty modest, which is a little bit puzzling. But the big news has been on the tariffs, which the administration announced on steel and aluminum a couple of weeks ago. But then they walked it back last week by making the announcement that Mexico and Canada would be excluded. Investors are worried about retaliation and an all-out trade war. My sense of it is, is that an all-out trade war erupting is a low probability event. You have to keep in mind that the average U.S. tariff rates have declined over the last 30 years. And according to the World Bank, we're one of the lowest in the world at 1.6%. I really think this is more about negotiations than anything else. Even though the market had a good week last week, I would still say that the patient is in the recovery ward and that this consolidation phase we're going, that we're in, has yet to fully run its course. What typically happens is that the markets retest their lows in the first month after the initial decline, which, yes, would suggest that we're already out of the woods. But I think the return of volatility might keep a lid on the market for a little while longer. My strategy has been to buy the dip, and it still is. But I'm trying to do it in a patient, thoughtful manner by focusing on good companies at good prices. And that's because I believe the business cycle is going to continue on this year. What's been encouraging is that the defensive sectors haven't gained a foothold during this pullback because during an extended prolonged correction, it's the defensive sectors that usually take over and that hasn't occurred. The leadership has been in the industrials, the financials, the technology stocks, and I would expect that to continue. Now, on the technical side of things, for those of you who 
look at that. Well, things are looking a little rosier here too. We've seen improvement in the percentage of groups in defined uptrends expand from 64% from 56% last week. I'm looking for a 70% number here. We're moving in the right direction. We've also seen the number of stocks trading above their 50-day moving average improve. Now, the negative is, is that I still haven't seen the improvement in upside volume versus downside volume, which typically signals the next leg up. So where would I be looking? Two areas right now, the financials and the energy stocks. Energy stocks are expected to grow their earnings over 48% during the next 12 months. And the financials are expected to grow at better than 23%. And that's versus the market expected growth rate of just over 16%. So the financials in the energy stocks, their earnings are drastically higher or expected to be drastically higher than what the market is growing at. I've gotten quite a few questions over the last few weeks as oil prices and energy prices have corrected along with the broad market. The fundamentals, the fundamentals are still telling me that we're going to have continued tightening in the crude markets, at least for the first half of this year. OPEC has a goal of reducing inventories to a five-year average level. And I think they could be met by later this year. Remember. OPEC and Russia, their production cuts are pretty much locked in until the end of June when they when the oil producers meet again. Even with U.S. shale output increasing, there's solid global demand that should ensure that the inventories continue to draw down through spring. And on top of that, you've had these comments from the Saudis and from the Russian oil ministers. And they seem to indicate that they're more comfortable with extending oil production cuts until the end of the year, which, along with strong global demand, should put a good floor under oil prices. Now, whether it's a result of the Saudis' need for higher oil prices so that they can do their Aramco IPO, or if it reflects an assessment by OPEC, that the world can absorb higher prices without destroying demand? Well, who knows? But all in all, I think oil stocks should continue or should do pretty well. I particularly like the oil services sector, which I've mentioned in a previous show. A couple of areas I'm not so enthusiastic about now, the utilities and the REITs. At this stage of the game, The Fed is on track to raise interest rates over the next couple of years. And at the same time, they're shrinking the balance sheet. That's a double interest rate whammy. The rates, uh, the REITs and utilities, well, they're interest rate sensitive groups. The utilities are expected to grow their earnings by about 4.6% this year. And the REITs, well, their earnings are shrinking or expected to shrink by more than 9%. Those are the two that I'm not real favorable on at this point, the utilities and the REITs. Listen, we've come up to the time where we need to step away and take a break. When we come back, I'm going to be talking about four stocks. This is Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing. We are back in just a moment. You've worked hard. You've saved and invested. 
Now you want to make sure all your hard work pays off. Now's the time to start planning for that future. Hi, this is Eric Whiteman of the XML Financial Group. No two people have the same goals and values. We can help you craft a framework for making a lifetime of smart financial decisions that's right for you. Now's the time to get the advice you deserve. Call us at 301-770-5234. Well, thank you and welcome back to this edition of Common Sense Investing. I'm your host, Eric Whiteman partner here at the XML Financial Group. So glad you could join me today. Hey, if you got a question for the show or you want to contact us, you can always send us an email. Send it to podcast at xmlfg.com. Once again, it's podcast, which is plural, at xmlfg.com. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I did a show on the core holdings. The core holdings, the core stocks are the ones that I buy with the intent of holding them forever. And in order for me to do that, well, then they better be some pretty darn good companies. As a matter of fact, I would say there aren't too many companies that actually fit that bill. Only a handful. I think that core holdings should make up the bulk of someone's equity portfolio. These are the high quality businesses that aren't going away tomorrow. They have these high walls, these moats around their businesses, and they aren't open to obsolescence. They're run by great managers. They produce copious amounts of free cash flow. But because they're great businesses, they rarely sell at significant discounts. So I'm willing to pay up for them. I'm willing to pay up for them because of the quality and because of my intended holding period. I want to hold them forever. So buying them for a dollar more or a dollar less probably isn't going to make a big, big, significant difference over 20 years. If I didn't own them, if I didn't own any of these, I'd probably go ahead and buy a half a position when I could, when I had the money. And then I'd be more patient on buying the other half. What I consider the core of the core is Berkshire Hathaway, symbol BRK. I buy the B shares, BRKB. Now, I own all the stocks I'm talking about here, just so you know. I've talked about Berkshire at length on a number of shows, so I won't do it again today. Now, if Berkshire were just this run-of-the-mill company, I'd have a hard time buying it now because it's trading at 1.4 times book value which has been close to the upper range to the stock. I prefer to buy it when it's closer to 1.2 times book value or around $175. But since it's a core type holding, I'll go ahead and I'll buy half. And then I'd wait and add the other half when it's close to that 1.2, 1.3 times book value. Another one, another core holding is Johnson & Johnson, symbol J&J. It's trading around $133, paying a 2.5% dividend. This isn't just a pharmaceutical company. This is a company that has a diversified collection of healthcare-related businesses, which means they have diverse revenue streams. They're the world's largest healthcare company with revenues coming in just around $76 billion. Today, The pharmaceutical division contributes just about 47% 
of total revenue and has several industry leading drugs like Remicade and the psoriasis drug Stellara. Over the last couple of years, they've launched several new blockbuster drugs, which is great because companies their size, well, they need to increase the number of drugs in the late stage development to support their long-term growth. I think that's the case with all drug drug companies. Investors value you on your pipeline. The medical device group brings in almost another 35% of revenue. They have a dominant position in a lot of areas like orthopedics. If you need a new hip or a new knee, it may be one of theirs. And then finally, you have the consumer products division, which rounds it out, rounds out the revenue at about 20%. You know their brands, Band-Aids, Listerine, Neutrogena. So you have three different business segments that diversifies your income stream. So let's talk about the stock. It's trading just around $132. And Value Line projects earnings of $7.50 per share this year. Now, if they do earn the $7.50 this year, we're buying them at 16 or 17 times earnings. They've been much cheaper and they've been a whole lot more expensive too. Operating and net margins have been growing steadily over time, which means that management has been doing a good job. Although I would like to see better growth numbers coming out of J&J. They pay a nice, well-covered dividend and they've increased that dividend for 54 consecutive years. So that dividend is clearly important to them. Think about this for a second. The dividend has been growing at better than 8.5% per year for the last 10 years. That means it's more than doubled over that time. You look at Value Line, Value Line gives them an A++ for their balance sheet for financial strength. They get 100 for earnings predictability, which is the highest you can get, and a one for safety. This is a quality, quality company. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the drug stocks now for a number of reasons, but again, this is a core type holding. So I'd buy half and wait to add to it. And on top of that, they generate a ton of free cash flow, about $6.50 a share this past year. And they've been very shareholder friendly. With the free cash flow, you can pay down debt, you can buy back stock, you can pay the dividend, you can do mergers and acquisitions. And they're doing all these things. Pepsi, symbol PEP, that's another core stock. Again, Like the drug stocks, I'm not a big fan of the sector right now. The stock is trading at around 113 with close to a 3% dividend. And the natural question a lot of people ask is, well, why buy Pepsi when I can buy Coke? Well, the reason is, is because I think Pepsi is more diversified. They have the snacks business. Frito-Lay is 25% of sales and 47% of operating profits. And then you look at the beverages, the beverages are 34% of sales and 30% of operating profits. They continue to refine their brands to cater to the changing consumer preference. Right now, the stock is trading about 20 times this year's earnings estimates. Not what I would call cheap, but it is about average. It's about the average it's traded at for the 10 out of the last 15 years. Coming out of the financial recession, 
it got down to about 15 or 16 times earnings when things were looking pretty bleak. So at 20 times earnings, I don't think Pepsi is, is crazy. I don't think it's a crazy stretch, but I am cheap. Like with the rest of the core holdings, I'm willing to pay up for half and then be patient and see if I can buy the other half at about 16 or 17 times earnings. You may see it because the beverage industry is under pressure now with declining beverage volumes. Be patient. Like Johnson & Johnson, they get all the high marks from Value Line. A++ for financial strength, 100 for earnings predictability, a 1 for safety. Great numbers. The last one, the last one is a bank. Symbol USB, US Bancor. It's trading around $55, paying a 2% dividend. Now, those of you who have listened for a long time, you know I used to talk about Wells Fargo, symbol WFC. Wells is a core holding. So if you own it, own it. I'd continue to own it. Most of Wells Fargo's problems are self-inflicted, and hopefully over time, they'll correct themselves. But I think USB would be my choice for the best bank in America now. Like Berkshire, I've talked about it enough and I don't want to bore you to tears, but what I like about them is their business model. It's a bit different than the big four banks. They have a good deal of revenue that comes from services. They don't have a lot of trading revenues. They don't have a ton of derivatives exposure. It's just a plain old boring bank that does a great job at being just a plain old boring bank, which is what I want. No surprises. I don't want to hear about a derivatives trade gone wrong. This is one that I think of the big four that I'm, or of the four that I'm going to mention today, that's close enough to being an outright buy. I'd be a buyer of half now and then the other half at close to $52. These cores and a couple of others are what you build a portfolio around. These are your investing staples. Listen, that's about all we have time for today. We'll be back next Wednesday. Until then, remember, it's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow them. Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.